0: This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear hear and rejoice in the truth. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, of whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we entrust ourselves in this time to you. This is your word. And, Father, when we come to your word It is very much standing on holy ground. So we ask that you would humble us and that you would exalt your glorious self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we may worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, For those of you who may be just joining us in this series, we've been going through the book of Romans for some time now. We've been in chapter 9. Since near the beginning of this year, and we've been working our way through verse 4 in particular because it is so packed with um, important doctrinal truth. I haven't wanted to rush through it. I've wanted to take time with you all so that when we read these terms, we have some familiarity with what is being designated. Paul is bearing his heart just again by way of context and he is expressing a a sorrow and a grief that is continual and deep within him for his unbelieving brethren the jews according to the flesh Um, and he is elaborating on the reason he is so grieved which is that there are so many wonderful privileges that have been entrusted to the jews he talked about the adoption, uh, the the fact that God referred to the nation of Israel as his son, that he treated them as such and brought them out of Egypt with a, a mighty arm, a powerful arm, that they may worship him. He also talks about um, the the glory. The glory that God revealed his great glory, namely in his character, who he is. He disclosed himself to his people. And he gave a a visible manifestation of that glory through um, a cloud, a bright shining cloud and through bright light, a fire that led the children of Israel both during the day and at night, a glory that filled the tabernacle and later the temple that Let the people know that God is in your presence. He is dwelling among you. He also gave them the covenants, and we spent several weeks uh, looking at what the the covenants are these um, legally binding agreements. Really, that there is one legally binding agreement that the Lord is made with himself in eternity, that he then communicates to his people over time and progressively unfolds it to disclose more of his glory, who he is and what he has done for his people to bring them into relationship with himself. And then we also looked at the giving of the law, the great privilege of God speaking his word to his people. And what did he expect in return? Well, he expected that they would believe him. He expected obedience. And we looked last week at how God provided everything that was needed, physically speaking. He provided every material blessing. He he planted them in a, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, and he was their God. He manifested himself to them, and he spoke to them. But they did not believe. Most of them did not believe. And then, the service of God, this priestly service of God that he gave to Israel, that they would attend on him and that they would know something, learn something of redemption through all the types and the signs, the shadows that God gave them. And we saw that namely through the sacrificial system and the great day of atonement when we looked at it last week. This week, I want to look with you at the promises, the, promises, the this is a phrase, but it is so packed with meaning as well. I really wanted to dedicate this week to it. When Paul speaks about the promises, he's identifying the sixth great privilege to Israel. And the first question we should ask is really, what, what are the promises of God? What's, what's in view here? Well, the word itself means um, an announcement, It's rooted in the word angelos in the Greek, which sounds like angel, and the word angel means messenger. It means one who is to announce what he is about to do. So, the promises are public declarations of what one intends to do. Now, we know from the scripture that God does not announce everything that he does, right? He has a Secret will and a revealed will. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things that are revealed are for us. They belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Those are the promises that he has revealed to us That he has publicly announced. And he wants us to know them. Strictly speaking, the promises in Scripture can be made between multiple parties. Sometimes the promise is described as a promise between God and God. Other times the promise is made between God and man. And then sometimes the promise runs from God, excuse me, from man back to God. Those are oftentimes called oaths. Oaths, But the promises that Paul has in view are those that God has made to men, namely to the nation of Israel. And every one of those promises is rooted in the promise that God has made with himself in eternity. The Father with the Son and the Son with the Father. And then he has simply announced those promises that he predetermined to men in space and time to let them know that they were beneficiaries of those promises. And everything that he announces, along with those things that he keeps secret, because this is God, he brings to pass. Every one of those decrees of his counsel, whether it has been revealed to us or not, he brings to pass with certainty. His promises are guaranteed. Listen to Isaiah 46 Verses 9 and 10, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The Lord is calling upon Israel to remember the former things of old. Remember the history of how God has faithfully delivered his people and judged his enemies. Think on those things. God declares all things from the end to the beginning. That means all things are predetermined by his counsel. There is not anything that comes to pass that he hasn't predetermined. He goes on to say in verse 11 of Isaiah 46, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. This bird of prey is a reference to Cyrus, king of Persia, whom God calls from the east to conquer Babylon and he issued And Cyrus was the one who issued the decree for the Jews to return to their homeland from captivity. God has decreed the end from the beginning and he will bring it to pass. All the promises of God are guaranteed. You may be wondering why Paul is calling out promises as over against the covenants. They seem to be related. That was a question that I certainly asked myself. But Paul lists them separately and and that for an important reason. The covenants are are those or that, the covenant, is that which contains the bundle of God's promises. The covenant is the legal structure that envelops all of the goodness and the promises of God to his people. It's the Last will and testament that guarantees that the promises contained in the will will be delivered to the beneficiaries. So you see how they are certainly related. When we looked at the promise of the new covenant several weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, the writer to the Hebrews describes the covenant this way, the Lord speaking, For this is the covenant that I will make, that is, I will fulfill and I will bequeath as a will, a last will and testament, with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Did you hear how many times he said, I will, and I will? Those are all the promises, and they're bound up within the solemn covenant of God to ensure their completion. Well, as I began to think about the covenants and the promises specifically, I asked myself, how many promises has God revealed in Scripture that he wants us to know? I mean, is this a, just like a couple of promises that we need to latch on to and know, or is this something bigger than that? And uh, as I usually do, I, I like to look to the Puritans on these subjects with regard to theology because they were so um, rich with regard to their understanding of the Word of God. And I I did a search on the promises and I came across a Puritan named Edward Lee, L E I G H. I had not heard of him before. But he wrote a fantastic work called The Treatise or A Treatise on the Divine Promises, published the year 1656. It's actually five books contained in one great work. And in this work, Edward Lee details hundreds of the divine promises that he has identified across virtually every book of the Bible. He has an index in the back that shows you the promises by book, and it's breathtaking how many there are. And that's only a sampling of the number of promises that are actually recorded in the scripture. So I began to understand it's actually a much bigger subject than I thought, and how in the world am I going to preach a message in one message on the promises of God? So my prayer is, Lord, help me. Um, And at the same time, my aim with you today is to give you an overview of the promises. What they are, why they were important to Israel, and why they matter to us. And to encourage you to search them out. Because they are your blessing, your life. We'll get to that. Edward Lee was really helpful to me, though, as I went through his book. He focused the promises into categories. Right? And what he said is that there is really one major promise that you see in Scripture and then there are many sub-promises or supporting promises that all bolster and hold up the one main promise. And so what is that great promise in Scripture? Well, we've already identified it when we went through the covenants. It was spoken to Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7, when God said this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your seed after you. There it is. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the great promise of all of Scripture. And since the great problem of man that has been identified in Scripture is that in our natural state we are unclean sinners, who are unfit to be in the presence of holy God, and that the wrath of God is upon us, abiding on us, then the great great promise, in order for it to come to pass, means this, that God himself must do something to restore us into right relationship with himself. God himself must cleanse us and make us fit to be in his presence through a process of a total transformation from within, a new heart. In short, he must save us to ensure the promise. And this he does through the work of God alone. That's very important. That's what makes Christianity unique, set apart from every other belief and religion in the world. God the Father graciously plans our redemption in eternity. He does so by setting his love upon us. Uh, He makes a sovereign choice, an election. Yes, the Bible uses the word elect without reservation, without apology. God makes a sovereign election in eternity by setting his love on some, some who don't deserve it who don't do anything to earn that love or to draw that love from the Father. He just loves because he is a loving God. And then the Son graciously demonstrates God's love by coming to earth and willingly laying down his life, his perfect life, as a substitute for his enemies. And then God the Holy Spirit graciously applies God's love by regenerating us and giving us the gifts of repentance and faith to turn away from our old way of living and to embrace the Son and His completed works so that we would be saved. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 summarizes this really well. Paul says to Timothy, God who has saved us And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. It's incredible. Before anything existed, God purposed in Christ to save us. But he works it out in space and time in you and me through the operation of the Holy Spirit of God who calls us with his holy and effectual call it's the call that Jesus gave to Lazarus Lazarus come forth live you who are dead in trespasses and sins live and we come to life spiritually speaking so the great promise in scripture is again I will be your God and you will be my people But that is accomplished by the promise of salvation from the Father, carried out by the Son, and applied by the Spirit for all of his chosen people. You'll know that you're dealing with the major promise in Scripture as you're reading when you come across promises relating to elements of salvation. When you read about justification, that's a word that means right standing with God. And related to that, you will see concepts like the gift of the forgiveness of sins or righteousness, God's gift of righteousness. You will also read it when you read about sanctification, how he sets us apart from our sin in our daily practice. And also in our glorification, our final state, when he raises us bodily from the dead and gives us a body that has no sin anymore, that cannot corrupt and die. Or you'll read about it when you read about God sending the promised one who is Jesus Christ, the Son. Or you'll read about it when you read about the Holy Spirit of promise. See, in all these cases, it's God and his salvation. God coming to us in the person of his Son and by the Holy Spirit of God applying the work of God to save us. All the other promises in Scripture hold up that one major promise. They all support it, and they all depend upon this intercessory, this mediatorial work of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer of His people. Outside of that redemptive work of Christ, there are no promises of God for you or for me. They're all centered in Him, and they're all carried out to their fulfillment in Him. You know, sometimes you'll see in Scripture a reference to the promises in the plural. Sometimes you see the reference to the promises in the singular, the promise. You'll see that in Galatians 3, for example. And the reason for that is because just as the covenant is one covenant that unfolds for us to understand, so the promise is really one. It's described as an inheritance. And the inheritance has blessing. In it, multiple blessings in it. It's a package again. So it is one promise, but it is many promises that make up the one promise. In terms of these lesser supporting promises, some of the categories that Mr. Lee points out are uh, deliverance and affliction, safety and danger, God's protection of his people from all evil, God's presence with his people in times of trouble. Correction for his own when they sin. He, the chastening of God is also a promise of God. His love and his tenderness for his own. He, he bottles up the tears of his saints. He knows your sorrows and your pains. And God meeting all of our physical needs. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All the physical provisions he knows that you need, all of these things are promised as well that you need, right? That he determines you need. That he determines are good for you and that bring him the most glory. Some of the promises in Scripture are general. They're applied to a broad group. For example, when the Lord Heard Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. The Lord said this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If my people who are called by my name will do this, then I will heal them and forgive them. That's broad. Anyone who will do that of my people will receive my forgiveness and my healing. Some promises are very specific. They're applied to individuals. The Lord Jesus, speaking to Peter, for example, in Luke 22, verse 32, says, But I have prayed for you, speaking to Peter, that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That was a promise to Peter. But the Lord wonderfully applies that promise to the whole church. This is what we are to do We are prayed for by the Father, and as he strengthens us, we are to strengthen our brethren. Some promises are given directly in Scripture. You see, for example, Abraham and Sarah were were given Isaac as the son of promise. That was a direct fulfillment of promise. Some promises are given in an indirect way. Paul was comforted by the Lord in his affliction in order that he would be able to comfort others who are going through affliction. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as an indirect application of the promises some promises are given in absolute terms and some are framed in conditional terms and some really have both how familiar are we with john 3:16 for god so loved the world that whoever and gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life what's the promise God is promising that we would not perish but have everlasting life. But the condition upon which that promise is fulfilled is belief in the Son. Belief in the Son. And that's how the promises of God work. They are preached indiscriminately to all. They go out to everybody, in a sense. But those and only those who believe the promises are the recipients of the promises in fact. You prove that you are a recipient of the promise if you can believe the promise by faith and appropriate it to yourself. The people who don't trust the promises of God are not in any way nullifying the promises of God. They're just showing that they are not beneficiaries of those promises, at least at that point in time. And thank God that he's merciful that those who reject him at some point in life have other opportunity until the very end to receive him and to repent. Some of the promises pertain to things of this life. For example, Israel, when they were promised the land, they were promised to take possession of the physical land, and they did, Joshua chapter 21. But then there are promises that pertain to the life to come, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells Righteousness. Some promises pertain to blessing, which is primarily what we're talking about. But some promises pertain to cursing as well. Read Deuteronomy chapter 28 and you get both. If you obey me in all that I say and command, then here are the blessings. But if you disobey me in all that I say, here are the cursings that you can expect. And what's so wonderful is that even the cursings... Even the cursing serve as a blessing to the children of God, because when, when the children of God hear the curses, God is producing the fear of God in our hearts so that we repent and turn away from that warning of catastrophe, and we turn to him where is life and restoration. But generally speaking, every time we read about the promises in Scripture, he is referring to the blessings that God has for his people. The blessings that he has for his people. Jer- Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, the Lord speaking says, For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the heart of our God. That's the heart of the Lord in his promises, to promise good to us. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. Right? Amazing grace. Edward Lee said this about the promises. He said, These promises are of all needful things in the world, both spiritual and temporal, that is relating to time, of assistance under all crosses and of deliverance from them, and at length of eternal glory and happiness in heaven. That's a great summary of the promises. They provide for God's people everything good in this life and for that life which is to come. Well, the promises are also described by Edward Lee in these ways, which I found helpful. He said, these are declarations of God's favor toward men and of his providence over them for his good They're called declarations of God's will, wherein he signifies in the gospel what good he will freely bestow. And then he he also says this, "...the promises of God are a rich mine of spiritual and heavenly treasures. They're a garden of most precious flowers, of medicinal herbs. They are as the pool of Bethesda for all diseases." For all sorts of persons and at all times. Isn't that wonderful? The promises of God are all riches, Lee says. All things beautiful, all spiritual healing for any who will receive the promises, who will believe them. Ephesians 3, in Ephesians 3, Paul calls the promises the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable riches, in other words, inexhaustible. You can never mine them to completion. And their riches, meaning they're infinitely valuable. These are treasures that God has given us that will never fade away. They pass on from generation to generation to all the godly seed. See, when you think about an inheritance on this earth, that inheritance is subject to decay and to destruction, isn't it? I mean, Dr. Ferguson was pointing out this morning in the Sunday school, you have to be alive to capture an inheritance at some point down the road, don't you? But if you're not around, then you've lost your inheritance. Or let's say that the inheritance is passed on generationally, but that wealth is eroded over time. Or you have one inheritor who is unwise, who's a fool, and he squanders generational wealth from how many generations? And all future generations are impacted by his foolishness or her foolishness. You see, earthly inheritance is corruptible. But God's promises are incorruptible. They're glorious. They can never fade away. Peter describes these promises as exceedingly great and precious promiser, promises. Exceedingly great and precious. Why? Because they make us partakers of the very divine nature of God. God. These are the promises that bring us into union with Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and cause us to live like him, walking in his way according to his power. I want to illustrate the promises to Israel, to you, from a sermon that Paul preached in Acts chapter 13. This was our corporate reading this morning. So if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 13, as I thought about how to best convey the promises, there are, it's wide open, right? So, I, as I read Acts chapter 13, it just seemed like a fitting, fitting illustration where Paul is identifying the, the promises God has made to Israel so that we would understand the glory of these promises and, and how important they are for us. Now, in this passage, in Acts 13, um, Brother Roy started reading in verse 13. There are, from 13 all the way down to 41, there are three Old Testament texts that we're going to see in verses 33, 34, and 35 that are direct quotes from the Old Testament that demonstrate how those promises have been fulfilled for Israel in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But you know what really struck me as I studied this passage is the entire passage... All these verses are a demonstration of the promises of God that have been fulfilled to Israel. The whole thing is one big testimony of God's fulfilled promises. I want you to notice, first of all, look with me at verse 16. We know the context here. Paul uh, has come to Antioch and Pisidia. um, He's on his first missionary journey. He comes to the Synagogue, that's the church of the Jews where they meet on the Sabbath day and they sit down. The law is read as well as the prophets, the law referring to the law of Moses and the prophets. And then the rulers of the synagogue send out um, this message. They say, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. If you have something to encourage the people, now's the time. Then Paul stood up, verse 16, and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So I want you to just notice first of all, who who is Paul addressing here? Paul is addressing the men of Israel. He's addressing the Jews. Clearly he's in the synagogue. But he is also addressing those who fear God. Don't misunderstand that Paul is only addressing the Jews here. He's not. In fact, he's addressing the Jews who fear God and all those who are non-Jews who would have been in his hearing and who are in his hearing now who fear the Lord. Peter, in a similar address to the Jews earlier in Acts in chapter 2, said this. This is speaking to the Jews. He said, For the promise, and this is referring to the promise of the Holy Spirit who would be given, is to you and to your children And to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's extremely significant. Peter was preaching to Jews, but he said, This message is not just for you and for your children, but to those who are far off. That's a reference to the Gentiles, to us, to those who are non-Jews. And the qualifying statement is always, To as many as the Lord our God will call, from the Jews and from the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's who he's speaking to here. And it's important we keep that in mind. So he's addressing us, church. He's addressing you if you fear the Lord. That is to say, if you have an attitude of reverence and honor toward him, you understand that in his hand he has the power of life and death toward you. You fear him, meaning that you don't want to disobey him. You don't want to bring shame upon him. You want to honor him. This is the message for you. Verse 17, the God of this people chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. So, first of all, here we have a recounting of some important promises that have been fulfilled. The first is this choosing. There's an election that's taken place with the fathers. The fathers is a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is it that God chose them? Well, Deuteronomy 4 says He chose them simply because He loved them. Loves the fathers. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is a love that's not conditioned upon anybody's goodness, but simply because God loves. Remember when we went through the golden chain in Romans 8, verse 29, for whom He, God, foreknew. That is, Those he set his love upon, he also predestined. He elected, he marked out a people based on his sovereign love alone and nothing else. This is this love that he elected the fathers. So the first promise that we see fulfilled is that God set his love on the fathers, which he promised to himself in eternity. And then he exalted the people. That's a reference to when they were uh, in Egypt as slaves, when they were dwelling as strangers in the land of Egypt. He exalted them. In other words, he multiplied them. They went down to Egypt, 70 persons, but they came out 600,000 men plus women and children, well over a million in company. God greatly multiplied them and kept his promise to Abraham that he would multiply the seed of Abraham like the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore and that he brought them out with an uplifted arm he brought them out with great power this was also promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 god foretold that abram's seed would be ruled by another nation, dwell in a foreign land, and be in that condition for 400 years, but then God would judge that nation and bring his people out. And so that was fulfilled. Verse 18, For now a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. He put up with, he endured, he, he bore with their ways. What were they doing? They were complaining. They were unbelieving They were murmuring in their hearts against the Lord, despite all the wonders he had showed them. And God should have just wiped them out right then and there. But for love for his elect, and for his love for the fathers and his oath to them, his promise to them, he didn't wipe them out. He judged that first generation terribly. All of them perished except for Joshua and Caleb. But then there was a succeeding generation by God's grace, a remnant who continued on and he preserved that godly line, that same godly line that would eventually bring the Messiah. He did not cut them off completely. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. The destruction of those seven nations in Canaan was also prophesied by the Lord in Exodus 33 and Deuteronomy 7. Here Paul is saying that was fulfilled. And he distributed their land. This was the promise of the land that was made to Abram. Fulfilled. Joshua chapter 21. And after that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Why did he give them judges? Because the Canaanites who were remaining in the land whom Israel failed to drive out completely as the Lord had commanded them were vexing them were were oppressing them and the people were so oppressed that they cried out to the Lord for deliverance and God in his mercy sent judges to deliver them to turn them back to himself and to preserve this godly line yet again during these 450 years God is faithful and afterward they asked for a king so God gave them Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years Even this king, Saul, this first king, he was a promise of God that was fulfilled. But this promise was actually a promise of judgment upon the people. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the Lord told Israel, this king that you're asking for so that you would be just like the other nations of the world, to have somebody to judge you and so that you can go in and out just like every other nation. I'm going to tell you what your king will be like, a reference to Saul. He's going to capture your sons and capture your daughters. And he's going to put them to work for himself. He's going to take of the the food and the produce that you grow and all of your increase, and he's going to take it for himself. He's essentially going to bring you into bondage again. This was a judgment of God in giving the people what they wanted because they rejected the Lord. God fulfilled his promise in Saul A promise of cursing. And in verse 22, when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. This is yet another fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. Jacob, when he was dying and speaking to his sons, pronouncing final words to each of them, spoke these words to Jacob. Excuse me, spoke these words to Judah. He said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In a cryptic way, Jacob was announcing that there would be a king who comes from Judah. This king would be David. And this kingdom that comes from David in his line would be the, a scepter that would not depart until Shiloh comes. Again, in a cryptic form, a reference to the Lord Jesus who also comes from Judah. From this man's seed, David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Jesus, which means Savior. Savior. It means Jehovah is salvation. He saves. And it's according to the promise. What promise? Well, that was the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we looked at. This covenant with David. When God promised, when your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up for your seed after you. I'm sorry, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was God's promise to David that, he is, that Paul is saying has been fulfilled in raising up Jesus, who is this king who will reign and rule on David's throne forever. This promise of a coming Messiah also fulfills a coming Messiah from the line of David also fulfills the prophecy of Amos, chapter 9. Listen to Amos nine eleven. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Tabernacle being a word that means booth or dynasty. The dynasty of David. I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old they that may possess, I'm sorry, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. What's Amos talking about? He's talking about God raising up David's dynasty again in the person of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he will, this dynasty, this dynasty, family of David's, now in the Messiah, will possess the remnant of Edom. It's a word that means mankind. In other words, the Gentiles will be brought into this family. This will not only be a Jewish family, but a, a, a multicultural family. Jew and Gentile. And it will be from this booth, this tabernacle of David, that God himself raises up in Christ. And after John had first preached, verse 24... Before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So Jesus came according to the promise. And then he talks about John. John the Baptist is the reference here, who had first preached before Messiah's coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Was that prophesied and promised in the Old Testament? It was. We were just looking at it in our men's study yesterday. Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 3 and 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord! That's the voice of John the Baptist that you see in the New Testament, as that's quoted directly. In this preparation, excuse me, this is also a, a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, where God's messenger comes who will prepare the way of the Lord. In this preparation, of the way of the Lord was through a message of repentance. It was through a ceremony that John was performing by baptizing people, showing them, you are unclean, not externally unclean, but in your hearts, and I'm going to baptize you in water to show that you need to be cleansed from within. And all who recognize their need of cleansing will come and be baptized. John was preparing the way of the Lord, All of the crooked paths need to be straightened out. All of your crooked ways of living have to be straightened out and become straight. All of your valleys where you live low, your low living, so to speak, has to be leveled up. All of your great mountains and hills of of swelling pride and your your self-ambition and your self-confidence, all that has to be broken down and leveled out as well. And the the rough road, your rough way of speaking and your rough way of living all has to be combed over and made smooth so that the King of Glory would traverse the path of your heart. He won't do that unless you repent. You must repent before the King of Glory will walk with you in fellowship. That was John's message. And friends, that's not just a message for Israel. Again, this message is for you this morning if you fear the Lord. John came preaching a baptism of repentance and he fulfilled God's promise of a forerunner to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet... I am not worthy to loose. This one whom John was announcing was called the messenger of the covenant, again in Malachi 3. The messenger of the covenant. He's the one who came to fulfill the eternal covenant that we've been talking about. All the promises that are made in that eternal covenant so that God will be our God and we will be his people. This Jesus is the messenger who who has come in order to fulfill that great covenant. How? In his sacrificial death for us. To secure the children of God from the wrath of God that was upon us. And he is the one as the messenger of the covenant who will reward or judge every man based on his faithfulness to the covenant. Did you believe my covenant? Did you enter into covenant in my work? Or did you disbelieve my covenant and trust in your own work? This one to come is great. This Jesus is great. And John was simply recognizing that he wasn't worthy to loose even the strap of his sandal. God's promise of the messenger of the covenant was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came. Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. This seems like a repeat of earlier when Paul is, is announcing, I'm speaking to you, men of Israel, I'm speaking to you, I'm going to take it all the way back to the father, Abraham. And I'm identifying with you, Paul speaking with them, I'm identifying you as a fellow brother, a fellow son of Abraham, a fellow Jew. But again, and those among you who fear God. Don't forget that. To you, to you, this, the word of this salvation has been sent. The Lord had promised to send salvation. That word's important, to send it. Many times in the Old Testament. Isaiah 46, verse 13, listen to this. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God is going to bring his righteousness near. He's sending his salvation to his people. How? By sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to us. To live a life of perfect obedience and to lay down his life as a sacrificial substitute for all who trust in him. So that when you trust in Him, you receive His righteousness. It's credited to you. That's how God brings His righteousness near. He knows that we have no righteousness of our own and that we can't earn our way. So He sends it near. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, Whoever believes will not act hastily. Another way that's translated is be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. And then Paul picks up on that quote from Isaiah in Romans 9 and verse 33. And he adds this. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Connecting us with the stone. That the stone, the cornerstone, which is precious to God, is actually a hymn. It's this Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus who is the stone. A sure foundation, a solid rock. In fact, the only righteousness that exists, it's on that stone and in that stone. Stand on Him. And if you stand on Him, you will not be swept away with the floods of judgment which are sure to come. That's the idea. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. God is sending his salvation in his king, the Lord Jesus. He brings salvation to his people. His righteousness is brought near. And all who trust in him will not be put to shame. Verse 27, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. This is remarkable. The the Jews that Paul is addressing who are unbelieving. He's saying, you and your rulers did not know this Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He came. You you didn't hear his voice in a way that you understood that he was Messiah. Messiah. And it's the same voice that the prophets are speaking and shouting every Sabbath when you come to the synagogue and you hear the prophets read. It's the same voice, and you're not hearing them either. And in so doing, by your deafness, spiritually speaking, you have actually fulfilled those prophets by being the ones who condemned the Messiah. Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 said that the hidden wisdom or the wisdom of God is a hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, knew in the intimate sense. They had heard the words of wisdom read all the time, but they didn't know them intimately because they didn't have ears to hear spiritually which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Here's another fulfillment of Scripture, of the promises that Messiah would suffer at the hands of wicked men was also prophesied in many ways in times in the Old Testament. I mean, Dr. Ferguson made a reference this morning to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent while he was bruising the heel of Messiah. This bruising of the heel is a reference to the suffering of Christ that he would endure at the hands of wicked men. When you look at the story of Joseph and his brothers and their jealousy of him and their hatred of him and selling him into slavery and seeking to kill him, that was all there so that we would understand something of Jesus' sufferings at the hands of wicked men. Read Psalm chapter 22 if you want to get a portrayal of the crucifixion of Christ on the cross prophesied hundreds of years beforehand in the Psalms. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's Christ speaking ultimately. And that the Jews would condemn Jesus to die without cause. That was also prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm 69 verse 4. This is spoken by David, but it's prophetic of Messiah. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. They had asked Pilate that he, Jesus, would be put to death. And you know, Peter makes the point even more sharply in Acts chapter 3 in speaking to those Jews when he said this. He said, not only did you ask for Jesus to be condemned, but you asked for a murderer to be given you in place of Jesus. You traded the prince of life for a murderer that tells you all about your heart, that you're wicked and you love darkness. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And again, this is all prophetic. This is, these are promises that we see in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and again, Psalm chapter 22 that he would be crucified and taken down from a tree. That's a reference to the cross. Verse 30, But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Paul's saying, don't just take my word for it that Jesus is resurrected. He had hundreds of witnesses to attest to the fact that he was raised from the dead. They've been witnessing to the people ever since the resurrection. Do you believe them? And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. Now here's the gospel literally is what he's saying here. The glad tidings is the word evangelion. It's the word for gospel. We declare declare to you the gospel. And here it is. It's a promise which was made to the fathers. And what's the promise? Look at verse 33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's not a, a reference in Psalm 2 to Jesus being born, having never been born before, or created, having never been created before. He's the eternal son. He always was in existence. This is a reference to the resurrection of Christ that Paul pulls in here to Acts 13. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I've brought you back from death to life. Verse thirty-five, uh, 34, and, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he spoke like this, I will give you the sure mercies of David. What's that? That's 2 Samuel 7 again, the Davidic covenant. But my mercy shall not depart from him, this promised son of David, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you, David. My mercy will not be removed from him. What does that mean with regard to resurrection? His life wouldn't end. God would raise Jesus from the dead so that the, the son of David would sit on the throne of David forever and rule. That requires resurrection after a death. So God raised him from the dead And he said in verse 35 in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. David saw corruption because David was a sinner. Because the wages of sin is death, Because the curse from the garden is dust you are and to dust you will return because of sin. But God raised up Christ without corruption. Why? Because Christ was no sinner. God was validating and showing Jesus was never a sinner and all the sins that Jesus took upon himself for us, our sins that he was crucified for, had been paid in full. That's why Jesus was raised without corruption. Sin and death laid no claim on him, and God proved it to the world. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. This is this wonderful consummation of the covenant. Jeremiah 31, the the, the covenant is, I will remember their sins no more, right? I will forgive, I will be merciful to their sins, He says through Micah, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. God is a forgiving God, but how is he able to forgive? Because Jesus, this messenger of the covenant, would be the one through whom forgiveness of sins is preached. Because he will be the sin bearer of the world and the only means of forgiveness there is no redemption or forgiveness apart from him and you know when the jews would have heard this through this man is preached to you forgiveness of sins they would have said what what man can forgive sins right that's what they asked as they heard jesus say sons you son your sins are forgiven you to that cripple in mark 2 They were asking in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? But Paul tells us it's through this man, capital M man, that forgiveness of sins is preached to you. Because he is no mere man, he is God. He is the God man. God's promise of forgiving the sins of all his people from the beginning to the end is fulfilled in the death and burial and resurrection of this messenger of the eternal covenant, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And don't miss Paul's words here, brothers and sisters, this morning. Let it be known to you, brethren. This text is still speaking to you, church. Have you come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? See, this is a call to repentance. Do you realize your need for forgiveness? That's the key. Because you'll only come to him if you are a sinner who knows he needs forgiveness. If you don't know you need forgiveness, you don't feel that, you will not come to him. You will reject him. These Jews to whom Paul was preaching had condemned Christ, an innocent man they Messiah. How much in need of forgiveness were they? And yet, brothers and sisters, it was your sin that condemned Jesus on that cross too. It was your sin that nailed his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross. It was your sin that caused Jesus to descend into the depths of hell and to experience your eternal hell that you should have experienced. He experienced it for you. What does this tell us about our God? That he would come to his enemies, to those who killed his son, and offer us forgiveness. (laughs) Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? See, the message that Paul is giving us overall here is our God is a savior. He's a deliverer. You saw it in the deliverance from Egypt. You saw it in his raising up of the judges for those 450 years to give you deliverance from the oppression of the people of Canaan. But the real deliverance is a deliverance that comes through God's Messiah and it's a deliverance from sin. That's the real oppressor. That's the real enemy. This is your greatest enemy. Sin is powerful. It permeates your whole being. It has infected your mind, your emotions, your heart. And it's totally hidden from your eyesight. You can't see sin directly. And it slowly destroys you. It eats away at you in the most deceptive way possible. You know what that is? By encouraging you to keep living for yourself. By encouraging you to, uh, that you're just fine without Jesus. Or that sure, I'll add Jesus into my life, but I'm not going to change the way I'm living. I, I just, I'm going to add him as an insurance policy so that I don't have to suffer at the end. No. Jesus came to bless his people by turning us away from our sins, that we would walk in holiness as he is holy. And by him, that is by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This is the key. He who believes. This is talking about faith in the name of Jesus. This is not some incantation. Use the name of Jesus and and you'll be forgiven. No, no. This is talking about trusting in who he is. That he is God. That he is the Messiah, the son of David. That he is the only one who can forgive sin. That he is the one who was raised from the dead by the power of God. Who has been raised from the dead ever? except for Jesus Christ. Three days dead, raised on the third day by His own power. This is the Holy One of God who is sinless and who took your sins and who offers forgiveness to you. If you believe Him, then you're justified, is what the text says. You're justified from everything that the law couldn't justify you from. Isn't that the plight of man? He's always trying to justify himself. That's our natural inclination. We always want to be right. And that attitude carries with each other and with the Lord. I want to justify myself somehow, Lord. I, I, I just want to be better than other people. I, I'm going to commend my good works before God and think that somehow that that's going to hold any sway in the final day. No, that's a fool's errand. This text is saying if you believe in Jesus by trusting in him, you're acting just like Abraham did with the Lord. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness. They were zealous for God. They had a real zeal, but they they were ignorant of his righteousness, that it comes not by your works, but by faith in his Son. That the salvation, his righteousness, is a gift. Then Paul finishes with this warning, and it's an appropriate warning. We should all hear it. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you, that is, if you are unbelieving. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. That's, that was spoken by Habakkuk in the Old Testament. He's the last prophet to Judah before Jerusalem was sacked and fell to Babylon. And Habakkuk speaks those words in the context of judgment is coming. God is going to work a work in those days, Habakkuk was saying, that you would not believe even if I were to tell you about it. And what's that? He's going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to take you captive and to destroy this city. Do you believe that message of impending judgment, Israel? That was the context for Habakkuk. Paul pulls that in, this quote in, to this context, and he applies it here to the Jews in the synagogue in his day in Antioch and to us today, all those who fear God. And what is this work of God that Paul is announcing but the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of Christ? And he's saying, if you don't believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then even though I've told you that this is the case, that it's true, the same result is going to take hold of you as took hold of them in Habakkuk's day. You will perish, but you will perish eternally if you reject this truth that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's a stern warning. That's a promise of eternal destruction for all who reject the truth. But it's a wonderful encouragement for those who believe. Many, many promises to Israel summed up in one sermon, right? That Paul gave here in Antioch. Great privileges indeed to Israel through these promises. But so many missed the blessing because they did not believe. They would not believe. Brothers and sisters, just in closing here, I want us to understand who these recipients of the promises are. Paul is addressing Israel clearly. But always remember, it is also to those who fear the Lord. That's intentional. God's message, his promise is to all who fear him, whether you are from the Jews by birth or not. You're from any other nation of the world. It doesn't matter. These promises are for us. We are to claim them as our own. And, and you might say, well, why? What gives us the authority, the right to do that? Well, the answer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. We read it in our call to worship this morning. Just listen to this again. For all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes. That's the Greek word. And in fact, in the Greek it says, are the yes." It's the most emphatic affirmative that you can make to the Greek. And in him, in Christ, amen. That's a transliteration of a Hebrew word, amin, which means let it be so. Truth. So for the Greek and for the Hebrew, for the Jew and for the Gentile, it doesn't matter. All the promises you need to know are fulfilled in Jesus Christ completely. All of the promises are yes in him. But then he adds this. To the glory of God through us. Wow. How is it that the promises of God in Christ are to the glory of God through us? And it is the apostle that's speaking and the apostles that are speaking, but it's more. Look at verse 21. Now he who establishes us, the apostles, with you, church, in Christ and has anointed us is God who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee? This is language of ownership. God has sealed all of His children with His Holy Spirit of promise. And in so doing, He is guaranteeing that you are saved. He's pledging Himself to you by His Holy Spirit so that you know one day you will be finally redeemed. And all the promises that are in Christ now become yours because you're in union with him through his spirit. See? So the promises are all yes in Christ. And you say, well, I mean, weren't there physical promises that were fulfilled like the land in Israel? Yes. But every one of those promises has a spiritual counterpart, very important to understand. They all have a spiritual counterpart that are fulfilled by Jesus Christ and to his children who are in union with him. So read the scriptures like that. Look for the promises and understand how they are applied to you in Christ and believe them. And when you believe them, you own them. And they become yours. And you know what they do for you? They're like flowers that are strewn along the pathway from where you started at the gates of hell all the way on your journey to the gates of heaven. That was a paraphrase of a John Bunyan quote that I put in your bulletin this morning, bottom right on the inside. Look at that when you have time. The flowers that God has placed, the the beauty, the encouragement, the riches, the exceeding riches of his glory, those are the promises. Grab onto them. Study them. Learn them. Commit them to memory. I'm I'm preaching to myself. Trust me. (laughs) Commit them to memory Because they are your comfort. They're your help. They're your life. When you are in trial, you go back to the promises. When Christian was in trouble in Pilgrim's Progress, he was in Doubting Castle and giant despair was pummeling him. He pulled out the key. Thank you, Pastor Stan, for reminding me of this yesterday. The key is called promise. And he got out of that dungeon of despair because he remembered the glorious promise. How important are the promises? Through your life, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all who fear the Lord. Enjoy them, study them, pray the promises because those you know are God's will. You will become an effective, fervent, praying person when you pray the promises of God. And nothing that is outside of the promises is something that you should pray. Pray the promises. And for those things that are gray areas where you don't know, just say, Lord, your will be done. If this is good for me and for your glory, let it be. Otherwise, you determine. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for all your glorious promises. Your promises are just your word, your eternal, forever settled word, a word that cannot change, a word that you fulfill in every case and a word which speaks good, a word which speaks peace, blessing to your children in Messiah, in Christ, and in Him alone. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to see that Jesus is our Lord and that we need His forgiveness desperately, that we have no forgiveness apart from Him. In fact, the wrath of God still abides on all those who are stubborn and pursuing their own way. Lord, would you soften those hearts if there are any here who are still not yielded to you? And Father, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Open up the promises to them that they might behold your glory and count them as exceedingly great and precious promises to hold on to forever. Father, For those of us who know you, strengthen our faith that we may walk with you closely. That we may serve you and be useful to you in the kingdom of God, which is now. Which you are ruling and reigning in in our hearts on the throne of David. And you will rule forever. Father, thank you that you are the voice that we hear and that we love. And and Lord, when we're disobedient, help us to turn quickly back to you to repent. And to know that there is no condemnation for us now in Christ. There's only blessing. And that happens even in our chastening. Lord, teach us a new perspective on all of life, on suffering, on on everything, Father, that we complain and murmur about. Lord, teach us that you are only doing what is good for us and to trust in our God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.